These are crazy times for white guys. We are not the most popular people on the planet. Doesn't matter if you grew up rich or poor, in a city, small town, suburbs. If you're a white dude, you know what I'm talking about. We've got some work to do. This podcast is about white guys who are breaking the mold. And they're doing things that are causing a whole new kind of happiness for everybody. I'm John Poor. In this episode, our new white guy is Stephen Wilcox. He's been participating in a local march for social justice and racial justice in our community of small community of 2000. And um, I thought it'd be good to, to talk with him a little bit about what he's up to with that and, and just hear more about his life and, and what he's wanting to accomplish uh, in, in this regard. Steven, welcome, welcome to the show. And um, I thought we might start with just hearing a little bit more about you and, and um, maybe what your younger life was like and, and what got you to get involved in these kinds of things. Thanks, John. Yeah, so jumping into my younger life, I grew up as a Mormon in Provo, Utah. Uh, so I lived <laughs> in a very homogenous community that, uh, you know, not only was everybody uh, Caucasian, everybody was also the same religion. Um, I don't know, there, there was just about zero diversity. <laughs> that's just what people looked like, at, you know, at that, that point in my life. I knew there were other places elsewhere in the world, but uh, they didn't seem particularly relevant at that point. Um, I did move from there around the sixth grade to a place where at school, um, it was less than 50% white. Uh, it was uh, next to an Indian reservation, and it was in an agricultural community that had a very large Hispanic population. So it was about 30% Hispanic, 30% Native American, and about 40% white. Um, those communities all just kind of, for the most part, stuck to themselves, and uh, and there was a, you know, not the not that much harmony. Um, and then from there, in my adult life, I moved to Portland, Oregon, uh, which seems like a really progressive city in a lot of ways, uh, but I actually found it to be very segregated. Um, so it, it was kind of like I lived in this white part of town, and then I knew there was this other part of town where people didn't all look like me, but there was no real mingling. So, um, so that's where I came from before I, uh, came here to Montana. Oh, wow. It makes me wonder if you were raised in that environment, like what were some of the social norms or rules mm -hmm. that you were exposed to? Um, Hey, you're going to be a white man someday. What does this mean? Or maybe it, it was really never said to you in that way, but I'm just curious, like, what were you taught to be or on the conveyor belt to be? Well, yeah, there was definitely a solid expectation that I would go to college. I would do well in school. Um, I knew I wanted to be a computer programmer from a young age and I was very much encouraged. I had, access to computers from, you know, just like the first grade, even just as, as a kid, uh, I had, you know, all of those things going for me and, and all the expectations 
that, uh, you know, that's just what I would do. You know, I almost didn't have to do anything except stay on the rails and just follow the, the expectations that were laid out for me. Uh, and it didn't really occur to me that for anybody else, it might be different than that, that, you know, going to college, going from college into a career of my choice, um, getting to have a job that challenges me and keeps my brain engaged uh, the way I wanted. I, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have put the word privilege to that at the time. Uh, it's only much later hearing other people's stories and the kind of struggles that people have in uh, getting, you know, just making ends meet, putting food on the table, that I realized just how insanely lucky I was to just have that uh, kind of pass right to me. I just had to sort of do my part and it was all sort of there for me. It was, you know, relatively easy compared to the stories I hear about what other people face. My family was definitely poor, but it was, I find that even a word like poor is, you know, we, we were white America poor and, and not even like Southern white poverty poor. I've learned that there are just so many other degrees of poor, especially after traveling the world. There's, there's no, no real comparison between the kind of poor that we were and the kind of poor I've seen like in India or in some of my travels. So even then, you know, we always had a house, we always had cars, uh, we had clothes, we had food. You know, we never starved. I mean, never even came close to starving. Uh, at one point we were on food stamps, you know, and that was probably our, our poorest point. Um, but, you know, from that we were able to bounce back and, and every single one of my family members did really well for themselves. And even my mother went on from that to trade real estate and become, you know, perfectly well off. So I was, you know, one of the poorer kids in my classes a lot of the time. Um, but I don't know, I didn't, I guess I kind of saw my life ahead of me. I knew I wouldn't always be like that. I feel like there was kind of a social deal that if I just did my part, I'd be okay. You know, I didn't expect to ever be rich and I haven't been, and I've been all right with that. But, uh, you know, I've, I've been very comfortable since then with uh, just the effort I've put in. The privilege you have. Was there a time when you started to notice that or you realized, hey, I got this pretty good compared to other people who don't look like me? Yeah, I remember reading about a study where uh, there were two resumes. One had more qualifications, one had more experience. And so the resumes would both be sent out for different jobs. And sometimes they'd put a, a white uh, name and photo on one of them, and, and they'd put a black name and photo on others, and sometimes they'd switch them. And regardless of which one people saw, they would kind of gravitate towards the white one, but they'd always have an excuse like, well, this one has better qualifications, or, well, this one has more experience. But it, <laughs> but it would always, you know, people wouldn't say, oh, I like this one because he's white. They would, they would like it because it's white, but they couldn't say that. They would just feel it and then they would justify it. So just reading about that, I realized, well, okay, so that's been working in my favor all along. Um, but I think what really drove it home has been in the last year, just looking at interactions with, with police officers, the people have had 
and realizing that uh, my own interactions with police officers have been very accommodating. I have gotten away with some crazy stuff that is a lot worse than what some other people have lost their lives over. Uh, and I'm just looking at how our, you know, your right to say something, your right to stand up for yourself really varies based on your skin tone. Um, and the, you know, the, the freedoms that I assume everybody had in this country, I'm seeing now that uh, a lot of people don't have, and that's, that's really got to me, but that's a pretty recent development. From how you grew up and you started to like notice some of this privilege that you have. And now this last year, it's like under the magnifying glass. You're, you're really now on a different page with your awareness. What's that like for you? And what are you doing about it? Well, for me, it actually creates a sense of obligation. It's like, you know, I don't see a way to give my privilege back. It's just there. Society has decided that they have their biases and preferences. Um, I, you know, I can't change my race, but I feel like what I can do is try to pass on the advantages to people who don't look like me. Uh, so I've attempted to do that. Um, so I'm trying to pass on my trade to the next generation and uh, and I see that, you know, I get different kids learning computer programming, my trade, from me. And I just feel uh, like I have a chance to affect some of the, the kids who are from these other eth ethnic groups to the extent that they exist here. I've been really lucky that I've had a more than... Uh, statistical representation of kids who are uh, from other races, Native American or African American. Uh, you know, there's so few in this town and yet they've been part of the things that I've tried to do. And so I just, I just really want to at least give them a chance to follow the exact same path that I did if that's what they want to do with their lives. I want to just let them know this is an option. This is how it works. I will give you anything that I have that will help you to succeed in your own path if you want to uh, do anything like what I did. Wow. So is this like a, a program that you do with young people? What is? Yeah, I've kind of uh, ended up um, joining in some existing programs and then starting some of my own. Uh, I don't have children. And so, but I do feel that sort of parental drive that it's time to pass something on to the next generation. And I think one of the most unique and beneficial things I have is, is my trade, my skill set. Uh, so just like carpentry, uh, computer programming, you know, takes certain skills, takes a mindset, takes a lot of base knowledge. And I think um, it's better for people to, to experience these kinds of skills as a when they're young, when in their formative years, that this creates a foundation to be able to uh, go further with it in life. So, you know, so I've worked with different age groups from, you know, grade school through high school. Uh, and I've just seen um, kids want to learn this stuff and they really like making things. Uh, and they're, they're kids with more aptitude, kids with less aptitude. And that doesn't follow any stereotype for gender, for race, for any of that. Um, but I want to make sure that I'm not closing any doors that I'm 
opening doors for any kid that wants to wants to go down this same path that uh, they can have a trade like I have. They can, and and I do my job remotely. I live in this wonderful little you know ski resort town, uh, and I I want them to see me as an example. And whether or not they look like me, they can have this same life if they choose to. They can live here in this wonderful remote place. They don't have to leave it and go to the city if they've got the strong cultural ties to this. And they can have everything I have. Wow, that sounds pretty rewarding. Yeah, like I said, I, I don't have kids, so I don't have that same, you know, the rewards of raising my own child. And so, you know, I'm here in this village um, and I feel like that's a that's a role that, that fits, that, uh, you know, the, the reward of bringing up the next generation um, for me, it has that, you know, that particular niche. That's what I have to offer. And not very many other people in this particular place have that same thing to offer. What else do you do that fits with you wanting to not just be some privileged person who's unaware? Um, so every Saturday morning, our town uh, has a wonderful group of people uh, ever, ever since the, the Black Lives Matter movement really took off uh, in the wake of George Floyd's killing, mm-hmm. um, there's a group that marches every Saturday morning. And so most Saturday mornings, I've been there as part of that group. And that's really opened my eyes. And it's, it's let me um, talk to other people who are also kind of either waking up at the same time or who have been involved for just decades and decades or their whole life, uh, including people of color. Uh, Native Americans in particular. Um, and I've always kind of wondered like why there aren't more of those people in this town. Um, but now I'm getting to hear directly from them what their experience is living here. Uh, so while I, with my you know light skin and blue eyes, don't experience any of that stuff here, uh, I get to hear their stories about how you know, they work in food service and they go to hand somebody their food and all of a sudden the person looks up, sees their skin color and, and takes a step back from them. And, you know, I had never thought about that. Uh, I, you know, what does that feel like to have somebody react that way to you? Uh, so that was eye-opening. Um, and I don't know what the long-term effects of this march will be in our community. It started a lot of dialogue. Um, you know, it's really brought the racist out of the, the woodwork. So I'm seeing that there is a lot more racism in this community than I had ever guessed, uh, you know, because of course I couldn't see it, but they're making themselves known in reaction to this. Um, it's, it's definitely a thing. The racism was beneath the surface and we've kind of brought it up. We've brought it into the light. Uh, and I think that's actually useful because then it forces people to say, all right, am I more in line with these people marching for justice or am I more in line with these racist people shouting all lives matter or holding up signs with unborn black lives matter, just some disingenuous message to all these counter protesters that have mobilized. So yeah, it's been eye-opening. Have you marched in a lot of other things or was this your first deal? I don't think I've ever been part of anything that could be called a march prior to this. No, nothing. <laughs> okay. So, and this is a small town. So it's like, yeah. when you go outside to march, 
it's sort of like going to the grocery store or the post office. You, everyone recognizes your face. So what was that like for you that first day to go March? Like, did you have any concerns? Well, I, I realized I was putting myself out there. This is a, I, I did have concerns actually, you know, so our very first March in this town was put out on Facebook, publicized, um, you know, and that, that got a lot of response. And then uh, some threats started pouring in. On the other side of the political spectrum, uh, a lot of, there, there was a lot of intentional confusion between protests and riots that was being drummed up by certain news outlets. And so there were a lot of people in town who had bought into that. Uh, and there were people who were really excited at the thought of like, oh, wow, I've, I've seen all those people on TV rioting. And God, if I were there with my guns, I could shoot one of those people. And they started bringing that kind of rhetoric online. And that intimidated a number of people who then chose not to participate. Mm. Um, so in my mind, I was aware that we might be marching through a gauntlet of people showing up with guns, as is their constitutional right. They, you know, we might be marching down a sidewalk and we might have guys with guns lined up on both sides trying to intimidate us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've grown up with those people. I know they're not actually going to do anything stupid. They're not going to just shoot us, but they're going to do their best to intimidate us. Um, mm -hmm. To the credit of our community, nobody has shown up at the march as a counter protester with guns. They've left them at home. They've just shown up with signs. They've just shattered from their cars. Uh, and I, I really appreciate that from the other side that they didn't resort to that tactic as they have in other places. Oh. But the threat of it did keep some people from marching. And I think the word for that is terrorism. When you're using the threat of violence to keep people from expressing their political beliefs. But I decided to march anyway. As you describe your upbringing, what's different about how you actually turned out versus how you were being socialized to become? Your life could have gone a number of different directions. Yeah. Well, I think part of it is that since I have a certain amount of economic security, I don't have that insecurity that would cause me to latch onto uh, my white identity as something that makes me special. Uh, I haven't needed that the way that some other people maybe have that, have that have turned to that. I've also had really good luck in terms of being around different ethnic groups. I, for a while, I lived in the Bay Area and somehow, you know, not through any intention of mine, my group of friends ended up all being Middle Eastern, uh, but they were from totally different countries. So, you know, one was an Iranian Kurd, a couple were Turks, one was Israeli, one was Saudi. Wow. So these are these are groups that were were raised from you know from the from infancy to hate and kill each other, and yet they all got along. They had very different views. Conversations got really heated sometimes, especially when the Iraq War started up. But they all respected each other. They all worked together for the same company, and we all played volleyball together, and we were all friends, and we ate together, and. It, that was really eye-opening. That really got me out of my little original ethnic group and made me see that all these these groups that we were taught to fear. This was this was post 9/11 too. So that you know we're all just people. We're all just trying to like go to work and put food on the table and just live our lives. And 
you know, there are all these forces out there trying to get us to hate each other for their own reasons. And it just doesn't have to be that way. Uh, life works so much better if we just have a little bit of respect for each other. And if we just question that narrative, it's like, you know, are, are all those people really evil? Are they all really out to get me? Uh, is there any real reason for me to, to hate them? And it just showed me, it just, it didn't have to be like that. And that whenever we try and lump people into these groups and oversimplify them, we're missing all these, you know, we're missing the vast majority of people who are just living their lives. So you stumbled off the, the conveyor belt mm. somehow. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good way to put it. Yeah, because I, I was just living out the template that had been laid out for me. And it just took me in that direction. I just followed, you know, my higher education to career, like you said, conveyor belt. And, you know, the programmer jobs were there in the Bay Area. And so, it, you know, I followed them down there. And it, it, so I, you know, coming from these smaller towns where everybody kind of looked the same around me to an area where suddenly people looked really different, but they were still just people. And we all still had, you know, more or less the same values and we're all friends. Um, yeah, I think that's what really uh, kind of made it sink in. I, I really think it was, it was that just, if we see people who look different than us, especially if they're the specific groups that we are told are the most different, unrelatable, don't have the same values. And we see that they actually they are relatable. They are people, they do have the same values. It's just hard to maintain those, those inculcated racist instincts. They, they just kind of go away. What advice would you share with other white guys? I would say, look at your thoughts and don't be afraid of them. I've seen some really racist thoughts pop up in my mind. I've been in Portland and I've been on the south side of Portland and, and I've thought, huh, what is that guy doing in this part of town? And then it's like, what the heck was that thought? Where did that come from? And then I look closer and I can see, you know, well, that's kind of how this town is built. This is what's been put into my head. These are these norms. This is how I was raised. There's a reason that thought exists. I have to accept that these racist, you know, cultural things that have been put into my head, it's my job to examine them. It's my job to question them and say, okay, that's, that's BS. Um, but, you know, we can, we can grow beyond that. But I think what doesn't help is if I get defensive and say, oh, no, I wasn't being racist. I was just, you know, and then make up some BS excuse. Uh -huh. uh, you know, defensiveness doesn't doesn't help anything. Openness and honesty is what kind of gets us past that. We have to see these ugly things that our culture put into our heads because they're there. You know, whether we choose to acknowledge that they're there, we've got to accept what what's in our heads in order to change it. So if there's a mold to break, what is it? Like, what are we stuck in as white guys that's not helping mm. us? What we're stuck in is just thinking that people are different because they look different. We're stuck in, society wants to tell us that, uh, that there's something wrong with people who look different. 
society is going to present us with examples. And this is just what I'm seeing from, you know, really well-meaning family members and such. They say, oh, but did you see this video where this, you know, person of color did this terrible thing? Or, you know, well, I, I saw in the news that these communities, they are doing these, these awful things. And all these are designed to create this idea that I'm part of this group over here. Um, I have this good character. I'm living my life right. But this other group that happens to be defined by people looking different, they don't have these same values. They're different. They're, you know, there's a reason they're not doing well economically. There's a reason they're, you know, in, in a different place geographically, economically, achievement-wise, whatever. They're trying to say they're in this different group and that there's, you know, some sort of God-given reason for that or a character reason for that. And it's it's crap. It's all such a load of crap. But the only way to know that it's a load of crap is to talk to these people. So how do you break the mold? You talk to people. I don't know. That's what, you know, to the extent I've broken out of the mold, it's been seeing and talking to people who are different than me. Wow. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? Just that... Uh, my subconscious, I, I look at the reactions I have, I look at the thoughts that I have, there's still a lot of work to be done. And I don't even know the path that gets me through all that work. But I'm gonna keep showing up on Saturday mornings. Uh, I'm gonna do everything I can to make this world more fair, to make sure that other people have the same options that I had. And one little racist thought at a time, I'm gonna break that mold you're talking about. And I'm going to make sure that uh, other people have the option and other people, you know, when other people say the, the same things that were put there into my mind, I'm going to help them examine that too. I, I think that that helps other people out. You know, it's, I don't need to attack them. I just have to help them see like, you know, they're people too. Everybody's people. We're all just trying to get on with our lives. So yeah, I think, I think I do a disservice to somebody if I let them say the same kind of things that were put into my mind and I don't call them on it, you know, lovingly, just help them see there's a better way with whatever experiences I've had that have helped me. That's good advice. Call them on it lovingly. Easier said than done. We've got to call ourselves on it lovingly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> <And> true. Then... <laughs> I've had to do that. Steven really appreciate your story because it it gives me more courage to stand up for what I care about so thank you for joining us today oh, thanks John if I can change anyone can so we've reached the end of this new white guy episode if you like what you heard tell a friend and subscribe to find out more about us things you can do ways to connect with other new white guys check out our website at thenewwhiteguy.com. If this was your first step towards being a new white guy, we hope it's the first of many. If I can change, anyone can. Hey, just want to give a special thanks to the new white guy team who make this podcast happen. Editor Peggy Poor, may or may not be related to me, and advisors Patrick Brown and Travis Burdick.